I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And this is Jason. Hey, guys, how you doing? And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to any new listeners. Uh, for the returning listeners, thank you again for joining us. A quick housekeeping item. Uh, don't forget about our survey, our listener survey. So check in on our website. Uh, there's a banner at the top and a $25 gift card up for grabs. So don't forget uh, at the end of the survey to send in a screenshot so we can put you in that raffle. And if you're new to the show or have yet to do so, please subscribe now and like our whatever avenue you're listening to this uh, and subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Today we are discussing lead and well, uh, well being one of the newer uh, items that a lot of people don't know about. But uh, in short, these are both building design standards. But before we jump into that, I want to catch up real quick. Michelle, you want to start? Sure. I've been doing well. I actually just got back from a quick trip to Portland, Oregon. Uh, my brother lives there, so had a chance to visit with him and such a different environment than Southern California. Um, it was pretty neat. You know, every night we were eating at a different restaurant that was not a chain. And some of these restaurants, like we went to a restaurant called Clark Lewis uh, that was done in an old industrial building the, the whole area seems to be sort of gentrifying and they're reusing all these different uh you know historically old buildings and so it's been it was neat to see uh and just how well they did you know the the 
redesign of what once was. Yeah, I love Portland. We went up there, I think about a year ago, or maybe a little bit more. And yeah, they they are really going through a gentrification period right now. I know when we talked to a lot of the locals that have been there for a while, they were very, very upset with all the uh, luxury condos coming in. Yeah, there's a number of luxury condos in the Pearl District. And now, just from observation east of the river, it seemed like there was quite a few buildings that, again, were being repurposed. And um, and then some new construction as well. But it's just neat to see. I mean, I, you know, I come from a developer-builder perspective. I can also understand maybe to some extent, you know, the the folks who are concerned that maybe the landscape is changing, but at the end of the day, change is always good. So Yeah, as long as it's done in a, you know, thoughtful way, accommodating those that are there already as much as possible, um, and not just making it an uncomfortable environment for, for people that live there already. Right. The thing that always surprises me about Portland is how unmanicured their streets and front yards and their parkways are. And yet, even though everything is not, you know, cleanly cut um, and the grass isn't mowed exactly as it is in like Ir- a master planned community per se, Irvine. there's still like, yeah, there's still a coziness <laughs> to it. It's, it's hard to describe. Um, yeah. And even some of the, the neighborhoods that, you know, you drive through and you're like, wow, has anyone taken a lawnmower to this, <laughs> to this front yard and, and, years um even those neighborhoods have so much charm despite the overgrowth yeah jason yeah the uh geez what's been going on a lot things are busy i feel like i keep saying that every time we get together and have a discussion but uh uh industry is going nuts still um we're dealing with scheduling issues and and uh trying to make up for other trades that are unfortunately falling behind on things let's put a little extra pressure on our teams family side i'm trying to cram five days or let's call it 10 days worth of work into four days because we're headed on a vacation here starting friday so i'm looking forward to that and oh over the the holiday my son's hockey team won a championship at a tournament so that was a lot of fun um my son hit a an overtime game winner for one nothing win as well so it was pretty exciting nice stuff yeah it's a lot of fun but uh just trying to keep up, man. Just just trying to keep up. We're all pedaling pretty hard these days. It's kind of like the duck on the water. Everything looks smooth on top, but underneath, man, those feet are flying. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, what about you, D? How you doing? I've been good. And I, I have to mention really quick, uh, as listeners can probably tell, we're all multitasking. Um, so we're a little bit separated today and not in the same room. So excuse any background noise, but we want to get as much information to you as we can. Um, so kind of doing double duty, but yeah, I've been good. One of the, the benefits of being a sole proprietor now, I, I worked from Palm Springs last week, which was kind of cool being able to, uh, just take my computer to another location and, and still get some work done. So that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And then, um, I haven't given really an update on, on business lately, but, the other side of being a, a sole proprietor is uh, kind of those down points. I've been a little frustrated lately with um, on the two businesses. I guess I will I will say the the architecture business and then the podcast business. Just having these um, these goals or, or milestones in mind, um, certain things that that I'm I was planning to get done by certain dates. I just uh, 
crossed the eight month mark. I don't know if you guys remember, um, but for listeners that have been following along, uh, it's been officially eight months since I left uh, my previous firm uh, to start my own practice. And uh, just still standing, buddy. Good work. Most (laughs) people fail at like four months. Seriously, they give in. So good for you. Congratulations. I I always hear the first year is the toughest. Yeah. It as far as work goes, financially been okay, but you run into the problem of, especially with Instagram now, seeing other businesses that that you uh, not idolize, but they're doing things that you want to do, and you start to you know, get frustrated because you're not either able to do it at the at the moment or there's something that, that is preventing you, whether it's time or money. But I just heard this quote. I was checking out uh, the Joe Rogan uh, experience uh, interview with Elon Musk. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it yet. Um, they talk a lot of, about a lot of social issues and a lot of tech stuff. It's really interesting. Uh, but I heard a quote in there where he said... Uh, comparison is the thief of joy and I thought that was a fantastic quote for how I was feeling at the moment and then in addition to that I I had this recent experience where I was out at uh, my dad's house helping him with some yard work and he had this random rebar stuck in the ground and he had it there for like years and he hadn't removed it uh, couldn't figure out how to remove it so I'm helping him out and he's like, do you think you can get this? What do you think this is here for? So I started digging around and get down a little bit. And then I'm trying to pull on this thing. And it is jammed deep into the ground. And it's already bent from him and other people trying to pull this thing out. So then I start cranking back and forth. And all of a sudden, beads of sweat start coming down. My arms start burning. And I can see this thing coming up. But it's just, it's, I've been working this thing for a while. And then finally I stopped because my arms are burning so much. And then my dad walks up and he gives it one little tug and it comes out. And I was like, God, and I lost that satisfaction of pulling it out. But it just gave me this snapshot of you put in so much work. And if you just keep going a little bit, you don't know how far you are from that that final success. But just push through the pain and, and you'll get there. So. I uh, just wanted to throw those few things out because uh, it, it all just happened recently. Uh, thought it was a good, you know, story for everybody. You know, it's funny, buddy. I talk about with a lot of friends and some other people about what you see on Instagram and you know this IG life and all that, dude. Ninety-nine—that's not fair. Ninety-five percent of what you see is not reality. It's just not. And and I agree with the quote. You know, whether it was Rogan or Elon Musk that said, you know. Uh, comparisons a thief of joy because you're not you don't even know what you're comparing yourself to you're comparing yourself to somebody's best images and the couple great days maybe they had amongst the rest of the days that were you know tugging on that piece of rebar and somebody else finally just pops it free yeah completely agree so let's go ahead and jump into the discussion or the topic today again we're talking about lead and well these are both building design standards LEAD stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and WELL is just WELL, W-E-L-L. But I'll get into a little more detail in a minute, but to understand more about where these design standards came from, you got to go back in time. Mid-18th century, 
Since the earliest days of the Industrial Revolution, there were voices of dissent. William Blake's poem titled, And Did Those Feet in Ancient Times, published in 1808, commented on England's cotton mills as dark satanic mills. Charlie Chaplin parodied the assembly line in his movie, Modern Times, and the Rachel Carson book, Silent Spring, published in 1962, is considered to be one of the first initial efforts to describe sustainable development as related to green building. The 1960s were a time where ordinary people found their voice on a range of issues, including the environment. In 1968, the music duo Zager and Evans produced a song titled In the Year 2525. If man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may fall. Lyrics describe a future of scarce food and resources, an anti-social culture that relies on machines. The practice of marriage has ended, and children are created in labs. Public concerns about deteriorating city air, natural areas littered with debris, and urban water supplies contaminated with dangerous impurities spread in the wake of disasters, such as in 1952, approximately 12,000 people died in London from the effects of air pollution. An offshore oil rig in California contaminated beaches with millions of gallons of oil spilled and the Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, Ohio, infused with chemical contaminants, had spontaneously burst into flames. Advancements in technology, including photographs of Earth's surface from space, made the world seem smaller and heightened awareness of our finite resources. Simultaneously, an OPEC oil embargo in 1973 forced a 350% rise in oil prices and the costs rippled through the economy. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest, I don't want you to write, I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, God damn it! My life has value! In early 1970, President Richard Nixon presented the House and Senate a groundbreaking 37-point message on the environment. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality, clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. To guarantee that birthright, we must act, and act decisively. It is literally now or never. The EPA was established on December 2nd, 1970 to consolidate federal research, monitoring, standard setting, 
and enforcement activities into one agency to ensure environmental protection. Also around this time, forward-thinking groups of architects, environmentalists, and ecologists were inspired by the growing environmental movement. In addition, in 1977, President Jimmy Carter became an example of conservation by asking consumers to reduce fuel consumption. Businesses and environmental advocates joined Carter in issuing advice on cutting back and fostering the design of new products. To eliminate the impacts of buildings on the environment and human health, design concepts were developed. For example, the use of sunlight through passive and active strategies, using plants and trees for green roofs, rain gardens, and the reduction of rainwater runoff, and using low-impact building materials. By 1993, the U.S. Green Building Council USGBC, was established with a mission to promote sustainability-focused practices in the building industry. However, it wasn't until 2000 that the green building concept really began to globally gain legitimacy and implementation in mass. LEED, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, came to life from an unlikely pair. Rob Watson, a scientist, and a real estate developer, David Gottfried, who wanted to establish green building as a viable emergent market. They came up with a business savvy strategy where businesses were invited to the table. Standards relative to building performance were developed and buy-in at the very top transformed the marketplace towards sustainable buildings. LEED could now be sold to businesses as creating environmentally conscious buildings that would consequently increase efficiency, decrease long-term costs, and provide public relation benefits. In October 2014, after six years of research and development by the International Well Building Institute, Well took the idea of building standards to a new level, created by the Delos organization to improve human health and well-being through the built environment. Well is a standard that champions the optimization of conditions for human beings. It recognizes that all humans need balanced environments that connect them to nature. Randy Fisser CEO of American Society of Interior Designers sees design as a pivotal role. In the past, it's been much about programs and services that we can offer to our employees, like fitness centers and giving them access to different types of food. But when you actually add in design into the formula, it just creates a holistic formula for a better outcomes, better retention, better engagement of employees, better productivity, because design plays an integral role of movement of people within the space. It creates a, a atmosphere for thinking about acoustical comfort, thermal comfort, mental comfort. All of those things are related to design elements within a space and they are pivotal in order to achieve this outcome of health and wellness. While we have made significant improvements in providing healthy environments, we are far from where we could and should be. Today, there are 4.2 million deaths every year as a result of exposure to ambient outdoor air pollution, 3.8 million deaths as a result of household exposure to smoke from dirty cook stoves and fuels, and 91% of the world's population lives in places where air quality exceeds the World Health Organization guideline limits. Buildings and construction account for 36% of global energy use, 39% of CO2 emissions, and we are not keeping up with the growing building sector. Your life and health have value. To ensure that this progress continues, all I know is that, first, you've got to get mad. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, 
and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Who was that guy? <laughs> so that was the, the audio that you heard was uh, the little monologue was a I forget the uh, the character and the actor's name, but the movie is called Network. It's a 1976 film uh, where this um, news anchor has a breakdown on set. I haven't watched the entire film, but that that clip is a, a great snapshot for that p- time period. Uh, and what we're kind of talking about today. So, well, what's so amazing about it is is it's a clip from the 70s, and yet I truly feel like someone could say the same monologue today, yep. 2018, and it would still be applicable. Yeah, exactly. So uh, before we jump into it, just want to quickly highlight some more details about what LEAD and WELL are. LEAD, again... It's a building standard that refocuses attention towards more of the life cycle evaluation of a building, looking at some of those metrics as far as the performance of the building and developing more of a holistic design approach in developing that building to uh, prioritize energy efficiency, occupant health, and productivity. And it's a point-based system that looks at several categories like location and transportation, sustainable sites, water efficiency, energy and atmosphere, material resources, indoor environmental quality, innovation, and integrative processes. They have um, three levels to certification, a silver, gold, and platinum. And then as a a designer or an individual, a consultant, if you want to get accredited for, for this, there are a few levels. You start out as a lead green associate, and then there's the next level, which is a lead accredited professional. And those are broken up into uh, categories of building design and construction, interior design and construction, building operations and maintenance, neighborhood development, homes. And then they have a new pilot program that's uh, cities and communities. Well, took it a little bit, uh, another step forward. So you have LEED that's looking more specifically at the building performance. Well looks specifically at occupancy conditions and, and improving those conditions. So it's similarly kind of an evidence-based, performance-based system. And they look at seven concepts or categories of air, mind, water, nourishment, light, fitness and comfort of those occupants. So there's a lot of design strategies to achieve those. And then uh, in the same way, they have the silver, gold, and platinum levels. Have you guys, uh, Jason and Michelle, have you guys felt or have you heard any discussion within your your uh, focuses about LEAD and, and WELL? I know a lot of people aren't even familiar with WELL. It's only a few years old. Yeah, so I had never heard of Well until until we actually were prepping for this podcast, uh, and and I'm in you know the residential building industry, and it's just not a term or a concept that I think has really hit the for sale builder market. Maybe it's maybe it's being discussed on the multifamily rental side. Um, I'm not really in those conversations, or my business isn't in that in that arena. Uh, so yeah, Well was the first was the first time I'd heard it, and then. You know, being a California builder, 
I lead, and, and let me back up, being a California builder for residential single family homes, you know, lead isn't a metric that we're focused on. It's, you know, the Title 24 standards, um, which is, you know, California building and energy efficiency program uh, is something that we are focused on. And yes, you know, being a green builder, um, which is a, a term that I think a lot of builders want to call themselves a green builder, you know, that's kind of the focus. But yeah, the, the lead designation or the well designation, uh, not something that, that we're really proactively involved with. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say. Well, I haven't so much had to deal with it all, Demetrius. Lead. We certainly have had a lot of questions now. From a flooring side, there's there's only so many things we can do to help with that. It gets into VOC content of adhesives and products that we put in. But to Michelle's point, Title Twenty Four here in California is so stringent that the energy efficiencies that you're needed to gain. I don't know if they necessarily go hand in hand with lead, but it seems like they're a bit more tough to comply with at times and i know they're even getting more stringent on title 24 which going back to kind of discussions from i think it was our last podcast maybe the one prior is driving the cost that michelle's seeing on the direct side up and up and up because you're having to add more and more things and technology to a house all the while the, mar the market's only going to bear so much so i've had a lot of stuff before on lead but again it's a lot of it's really just focused on title 24 here yeah uh, to point out a couple of things, uh, you mentioned VOC. For those that don't know, VOC is a volatile organic compound. Uh, and that's just the material that it's in a lot of adhesives when you're putting uh, tile flooring or uh, certain wall panels and things like that. And some and paint, too. I mean, essentially, it's something that can off gas yeah. is the idea that that rebreathes. So one of the easiest examples, that's like carpet. Yeah. The way that carpet's made with all the chemicals that go into it, you know, when it's rolled out because it comes in a big tight roll, which kind of keeps everything together when it's rolled out and it's finally allowed to, you know, quote unquote, breathe, it off gases. So there's been a really big push to watch those VOC contents because a lot of those chemicals that were once used a long time ago have been found to be, you know, maybe carcinogenic or 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 just unhealthy in certain ways. And so most of that's been eliminated, but there's just a big focus on it. Yeah, and those materials, uh, and it's also in um, furniture as well. So one of the techniques uh, that to deal with that VOC um, or those com compounds is once all of that stuff is installed, they they have a uh, a process where they they transfer all the air or exchange all the air that's in in that building, and there's a certain amount of air that they have to exchange before occupants move in. Uh, so that's one process of getting rid of some of those VOCs because you can only get so much out. There's going to be some level of, of yeah. organic compound. One of the easiest ways for people to picture it when we're talking about the off gases and stuff like that, you know, if you're ever driving in your car and you notice the inside of your windshield's kind of foggy and you go and you like wipe it down and that fog kind of comes out, not like a wet fog, but just, a, you know, like a fog. That's actually off-gassing from the plastics and the, the rubbers and the vinyls and those types of materials inside your car. Um, and that's the type of stuff that they're trying to eliminate. I've never heard that. And then that new car. Yeah, it's actually the same thing. And that new car smell that everyone loves, those are chemicals. <laughs> yeah, no no joke. And again, that's that off-gas that they're talking about. So next time, you know, for, I'm, you know, I'm a fanatic with keeping my cars clean, but... 
you know, some people it's like you go and you kind of get that fog where you can just kind of like take your finger and you'll put a line through. You think it's on the outside of the windshield, but you kind of remove some of that. that's off gas. So it's, it's a really easy way to picture that or understand what that is. And but to your point, you know, they try to use the air scrubbers and the air exchange, which honestly is no different than mold remediation. So when, when mold's found in those types of things, it's the same idea. They put in air scrubbers and air exchange and all those kind of things to, to get the health of that, that environment back up to, to, to scratch. Yeah. On the extreme side, like uh, in cleaning solutions, uh, they can irritate your eyes, nose, throat. And could cause difficulty breathing. I'm sure everybody's experienced that when you're like cleaning out your bathroom or something. Uh, all of those chemicals are volatile organic compounds, but some of the effects that you don't really notice, they can damage your uh, central nervous system as well as other organs and, and cause cancer ultimately at some point. But you can check online. There's uh, websites that have the entire uh, list of different compounds and how they can affect you and how to protect yourself from those compounds. Um, but with lead, the, the idea is to get all of that stuff out of, of buildings and building materials. And then another thing you mentioned is uh, in California specifically, our code is advancing a lot more or uh, getting a lot more stringent than, than other states. I'll say advancing. Uh, the news came through last night, I think it was, that Jerry Brown just signed a bill, SB 100, planning for California to be entirely green-powered by 2045. And it just came through last night, so it's a little too early for us to, to have opinions on it, necessarily, um, or, you know, detailed responses, I'm sure. So we'll we'll pass on, you know, digging into this one because we haven't had a chance to look at it but just wanted to mention that really quick uh, so for anyone that's interested to go ahead and check that out and Jason you mentioned this the gap between LEED and California code is starting to narrow so just some stats to to kind of explain uh, in a, a compared to our 1999 building code the international building code there was a 37% difference from that version of LEED, which was 2.1. In 2004, the LEED 2.2, there was a 27% difference. And in 2009, it got a little bit bigger. It was two, uh, 29%. So this next version of the code will probably be a lot narrower just because we're getting so much more stringent. Yeah, and I want to say most of the lead stuff, I think Michelle kind of mentioned it, it's really built around big buildings like multifamily, um, apartment, you know, big like podium builds, those types of things where they really want that designation. I don't I don't recall seeing so much of it in single family, like even the even using it as a marketing piece. You know, I don't I don't recall seeing that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think most more than likely on the on the home builder or the for sale residential market the reason why lead the reason why builders don't gravitate to lead would be that it's hard to convince a home buyer that they should be paying more for a lead certified home that lead certification to most home buyers doesn't mean much um, on the flip side as a home builder you can market yourself as 
you know, a solar builder or an all electric home builder as, as my company does, or you can talk about all the inclusive quote unquote green features that you're including in a home, you know, drought tolerant landscaping, uh, high performance energy efficient appliances, you know, dual glazed windows, things like that. Um, and those things I think speak more to the common home buyer than someone saying, Hey, by the way, your house is lead certified. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think a home buyer is saying, Oh, wow, because it's lead certified, let me pay a little extra uh, in addition to the cost of the home. But I think you do get a little bit of an added value. Maybe it's a little bit harder to convince a home buyer to, to take that on, but there is that value, that long-term value. And I hope this podcast will provide some clarity and, and value to why a lead home or a will home would would be beneficial to have uh, just to, to understand the scope of everything that goes into it. Um, I know it's a sort of an uphill battle of trying to, you know, negotiate the fees with the value and, and the selling of a home and, and different project types. So it, it's uh, well. I think I think one of the one of the biggest issues with it though is you're trying to get people to understand the future benefit. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like right now, you know, to Michelle's point, if they're going to pay an extra, you know, three percent, five percent, ten percent on that house up front, it's really kind of a semi unknown as to how much you're going to quote unquote save with a more energy efficient, you know, home. Right. Yeah. So there's been builders out there that when they've gone above and beyond Title 24, there's a couple that I can think of that have done it for a long time. You know, Meritage Homes, Pardee Homes. Uh, Meritage, I think, actually touts the fact that they're already whatever the next Title 24 code is, they're already compliant to that. And so they've done the, the research where they show the bills up front of, you know, a comparative home at such and such a stage, which is kind of a rouge, right? Because you don't really know how that house was built versus, you know, a similarly square footed house that they have and how much those utility bills look to be in that situation um, and try to tie that off uh, to, to how they build it. And then ultimately say, OK, so that much savings times whatever you're looking at a payback in a year, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. But it's difficult because you're trying, again, to convince somebody about the future savings, you know what I mean, that you're going to hopefully realize is, is you know, it's a, it's a tough story to do. I think it's hard to come up with one uniform um, way to convince everyone to, to go down the route of lead and well, because each situation is going to be different. What the builder is willing to install is going to be different. The site's going to be different. There's there, there's no way to really consolidate one single collection of data or percentages to to convince everyone because every situation is going to be a little bit different. But if you look at individual projects and what they achieve, you get an idea of what's possible. So this one project, Operation Smile, which is a nonprofit uh, nonprofit medical organization that specializes in providing free surgeries for children and young adults uh, born with cleft palate conditions. They have a 75,000 square foot building, which is their global headquarters in Virginia Beach. This one was LEED Gold certified. And when they approached this project, they their design goal was to create a headquarters that enabled their organization to communicate their mission and values and provide collaboration amongst team members and provide operational transparency to visitors. So they have a, a bright, welcoming entry auditorium and conference spaces for outreach programs and meeting with donors, 
doctors and surgeons, open office design, and a efficiently designed warehouse space that's visible through glass walls that allows visitors to kind of see the operations of the whole space. They leverage a smart use of light, neutral finishes, uh, simple, elegant detailing to serve as a backdrop to tell their story, and their lobbies designed to accommodate and exhibit detailing the day in the life of a child that, that receives the help of Operation Smile. But specifically to the lead characteristics, they've identified that they effectively use daylight and they, they no longer need lighting for 87% of the day. And they have an HVAC system that reduces energy use to 34% lower than average uh, usage. They cut their water usage by 30%. They cut nearly a quarter of construction materials by using recycled components and their landscaping cut irrigation water usage by 50%. So those are some of the possible achievements that you can get by going lead, um, which obviously will turn into a lot of savings over the life of that building. So have you guys, you don't have to say your personal thoughts necessarily, but what has been the perception in, in your different focuses uh, from the developer side or from the, the field side? Michelle, you want to start with that? Perception of uh, lead? Or, yeah. My perception, uh, again, hadn't heard of, of well. I, I think the concept is interesting. I think the thing that's that's challenging about lead and well is that you have to go through a certification process. You know, you have to be a lead certified builder, right? Um, or have someone within the organization who is lead certified versus just going and doing the work, you know, versus just going and building a green building for what for, for whatever that might mean. Yeah, you uh, you generally either have someone on staff or you hire a consultant. A good portion of architects are LEED certified, sorry, LEED accredited. Like I'm accredited for both LEED and WILL. So I, I, com I understand the design strategies of how to achieve the performance that you're looking for but I don't practice that certification process all the time. So that part, you want to reach out to consultants uh, that can that can usher you through that process most efficiently. But there are some architects that are familiar with that process and do it pretty frequently. Uh, so you just have to you know find out who who can be that bridge, either the architect or bringing in a consultant. So generally, they, right. they'll get a consultant or the builder can get a consultant. Yeah. So I think there's some added costs there. Again, to you're hiring a consultant who can go through all of the application and tracking uh, to demonstrate that the project actually is lead. So, you know, it's kind of difficult and expensive to do on your own versus, again, if you're just a builder and you say, look, I'm going to make it a standard feature that every single home I build will have solar included or every single home that I build uh, is not going to have gas. Instead, it's going to be, you know, all electric, um, things like that. The other thing with LEED, and this is, you know, this is just my perception, um, but it seems that the way that the point system works is that oftentimes maybe projects are being designed and built to achieve points versus being designed and built to have meaningful features to the people who are going to live, work, 
or play within those buildings. Yeah, I think that's a inherent problem with uh, new standards. They don't really want to make it too stringent and scare people away while it's kind of in its infancy. I mean, it's only been 18 years so far. It's not in the, not even the lifetime of um, most buildings. So I imagine as it continues to grow and kind of get gain some more traction globally, they'll ultimately start to flush out most of those kind of gimme points. And the USGBC has has shown that they they want to make these improvements and and they steadily kind of get a little bit better and better with each version that comes out. But ultimately, it's going to come down to building users uh, and and their action in this whole process. You know, continuing to to ask questions about lead and well talk about it, choosing to occupy these spaces as opposed to others and, and bringing these issues and, and thoughts up to their local and state leadership and so on. Uh, Jason, what have been some of the perceptions that you've heard? You know, for the most part, with the trades, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? Like, they're basically given a set of specifications and what we have to do, and we go out and do that, right? So a lot of the things that go along with lead is specific products you have to utilize that were manufactured a certain way. But ultimately, the installation in the field, for the most part, maybe maybe uh, without the, the installation teams and a few others, but for the most part, you're putting something in that you've already put in before. It's just It's just made up differently, if that makes sense. For, for instance, on lead projects we've had to, instead of using one, it's a really good example, instead of using one specific carpeting style we would use all the time, they're saying, okay, we need to utilize this product, you know what I mean, to put it in. So either way, the team shows up, they get loaded up with a roll of carpet, maybe a different type of pad adhesive, maybe a different type of carpet padding, and then it's a different type of carpet, but the process for them in the field is still essentially the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, so there's no additional training or install process that that you have to be kind of uh, run through or anything. Not not on this not on the sides that I'm used to. I mean, even on the cabinetry side, like if you look at it, there was a big debacle. I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but wood flooring distributors or wholesalers or whatever that one massive company is that import imports a, a product, and they got tagged because one, some of the products they were bringing in from China had formaldehyde in them. And for instance, that's a chemical that you just can't use and it became a big issue. But again, it comes down to just what the products are comprised of. So even like in cabinetry where you're using either, you know, generally a plywood or a particle board, sometimes they'll say that you need to use products that are comprised of these types of substances or can't have these types of substances used in their, in their physical makeup. So again, the the cost becomes more expensive because those products are, are more expensive to produce. But once it's purchased and brought in, that it, it's still the same process. It's just you're using different material and the installer themselves. It's not a big difference in how that's done. Now, again, insulators and things like that, I think there's differences there, whether you're doing like a normal batting installation versus, you know, spray foams and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vast majority, it's really in how the materials that you're utilizing on site are physically made. Yeah. And they're not, not so much the process of, 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 of building the house, if that makes sense. Yeah. So is there have you seen or heard of any field uh trade or or company increase fees based on 
doing a, like a lead project or or, or yeah no? i mean yeah it's it's more expensive to build and again i think you know i'll, I'll be conservative i'll say 90 percent, and that's a conservative number is not so much the installation it's in the cost of the materials yeah um you know what I mean? Like I'm assuming, you know, the, the, the sheeting that they have to use has to be a certain type of sheeting or has to be devoid of certain chemicals, just like I was saying in, in, in the construction of cabinetry. But the guys, once they go out there, they're still, you know, throwing it down and nailing it and doing all those kind of things. So it's not the labor side. It's, it's more so, you know, just the material side and what that, what's that, how that's going to impact the direct costs. Yeah. Cause like a carpet that's got lead certification, you know, for, for us on our side, a carpet that's got lead certification with similar characteristics could easily be an extra 20, 25% more easily. You know what I mean? Per yard. And that's a lot. So if you got something on a base cost $6 a yard, you know what I mean? You're looking at an additional buck, buck 50, depending 750 a yard for that house. Now, and granted, maybe that house only takes 200 yards, but that's an extra $200 on the direct cost. And as you start doing that with a lot of, a lot of other trades, you know, that adds up real quick. And, and then it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, the market's only going to bear what the market's going to bear. So how do you get that buyer to really buy off on that? You know? Yeah. They've seen, uh, on the well side, they've seen, uh, a dollar to $4 per square foot increased costs for, for a, a well project compared to a, a traditional yeah. project. Um, that sounds low to me, to be honest. I'd be surprised if it was really that 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 small. What drives that cost the most has been the acoustical control for well projects specifically. The acoustical control, the enhanced HVAC, because with well, the idea if you can go, if you go this direction is one of the the preferred routes is providing individual controls for every occupant to control. Uh, that the air conditioning and heating in their zone and the nourishment programs. So uh, healthier eating options and things like that. Those have been what have driven the cost for well the most. And, and well is a little bit, it's more design heavy in how you manipulate that space to, to make it better for those occupants. Like one technique is to increase exercise is having a, a prominent stairway to encourage people to walk up the stairs rather than using an elevator. And one project, for example, is the American Society of Interior Designers headquarters. It's a 8,500 square foot office space in Washington, DC. And this was actually the first project to receive lead and well platinum, which um, if you look at each design standard, they have a quite a bit of overlap which is intended and they approached this project as being a workplace of the future. So they implemented a lot of design elements on the well side, specifically sound masking systems to control uh, noise transfer. So different conversations from uh, your neighbor wouldn't uh, or from across the, the office wouldn't annoy you or, uh, or interfere with, with your phone call or anything like that rigorous water quality standards and a lighting system that was based on our natural circadian rhythms, which was intended to expand efficiency uh, by helping to regulate the body's processes. And then in addition to, to those elements, they had a, a 
nutrition program. So they provided fresh fruit and vegetables to employees, sit and stand desk at each workstation, and they had a wellness room that was available to provide mental breaks to staff. And then on the building owner side, I saw that developers were saying that they were able to get a 20% rent premium in office spaces that were well certified. So if that is accurate, that is quite a significant uh, jump in your in your available rent. Um, so going forward, has there been any discussion to Michelle? You probably know more about this, but has there been any discussion or prep towards starting to implement these lead this lead uh, specifically? I guess for you within our industry, no. Um, I, you know, when, when my company was first formed, we did have an individual who was lead certified and we did market that. I mean, we, we proactively put that out there. We let, you know, it was on our website prominently displayed, but it'll be very interesting to see if well and building well becomes commonplace because maybe the metric is easier for a home buyer to buy into mm-hmm. versus saying, you know, the building is scored this and therefore the building has, you know, this designation of lead certification. I mean, that pertains to the building. But if you tell a home buyer, you know, here's the well rating, I, I just wonder if, if in the future that becomes something that a home buyer can maybe start to wrap their head around that, okay my well rating is XYZ. It's similar to like a crash rating in a car, right? So crash ratings in a car, someone may pay a little more to know that their car has a five-star rating versus a three and a half star rating. Yeah. Is that why you guys drive a Volvo? <laughs> we, we don't drive a Volvo anymore. We sold that. Oh, that's right. Shoot. Okay. <laughs> um, kind of circling back to something we talked about earlier in the podcast, the way that the Title 24 works, and, and Jason touched on this, that those standards are comparable. And I'm not an expert in this field, so I don't know kind of what the apples to apples is. But, you know, our focus is, is building to those standards and then some. And so, again, you know, we've, we've focused on being an all-electric home builder. Uh, we focus on building solar as a standard, not as an option. Uh, those are kind of the two things that we um, pride ourselves on as a home builder. I think when you look at public home builders um, and 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 maybe even some of the privates, um, I don't think, or I'm not aware of any of them being focused on saying, "Hey, as an industry, we're going to shift our focus to to lead." In fact, if anything, I feel like there was more discussion about the relevancy of lead back in, you know, the 2000, I guess the, the mid or early 2000s. So I, you know, when I was in college and then, then right after college graduation, I, I heard of a lot of people, a lot of professionals looking to get lead certified. Um, and there was a lot of discussion. The Urban Land Institute had a number of programs and events around lead and educating people on what is lead and should you get certified. And, and I have found that at least now, or you know, call it 15 years later, 10 years later, I don't hear much about it in the residential 
home building space. Now, that may be very, very different for, you know, commercial or public institutional buildings or, um, you know, schools, universities, things like that. But in the residential for sale market, I, it, it hasn't yet been a driving factor of how we build homes. That's my, that's been my experience. Yeah, it's been pretty heavy on, I think Jason mentioned it, on larger scale projects, offices, hospitals, hotels, uh, those type of projects. But it, it hasn't made its way to to the home building space. And one of the interesting things that I noticed is kind of reflective of what you just mentioned, Michelle, is there was a huge incline uh, on the construction of lead projects I believe in the early 2000s and it kind of peaked at a moment uh, in like 2010 to 2013 or so maybe and then it dropped off pretty dramatically and I'm 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 kind of curious That's interesting you yeah it's interesting you say that because that was sort of my anecdotal experience but I didn't I didn't have any factual evidence to support that Yeah I'll have to track down that that diagram that I saw but I, I'm not sure if it was more of a, a, a lacking PR at the time or but but you have noticed a lot less people talking about it. And I don't know if it's that people genuinely just don't understand. They, um, you know, it sounds like a great idea and it sounds like it has a lot of potential, uh, but you really have to, to understand it for it to stick and, and be a driving force. And I don't think that there's a lot of education about the actual metrics of how you can improve uh, a building. Um, and it's, you know, when you get that much data, because these are a lot of points to improve uh, the efficiency of a building or, or the occupancy of a space, it gets kind of daunting when you start to see all of these numbers and it's hard to keep someone's attention. And that's why I'm trying to stay away from these numbers uh, because you, you get inundated with all these you know, all this information and it just, you kind of glaze over after a while. Um, so it's, it's a tough topic to convince someone because the stuff that you need to convince them with is super boring. Yeah. And the, the elevator pitch of what do you get? The, you know, the, the elevator pitch being the response to what do you get when you have a lead certified building? Yeah. You know, what does that mean to, if you're, if you're the developer investor or investor you know what impact does being lead certified have to my bottom line yeah um if you're the consumer of that lead building you know other than being in a state-of-the-art building what is the actual tangible um thing or you know metric that you get uh for residing in a lead certified building that's why I wonder, and again, I don't know enough about it, but the well program, I wonder if that becomes a more tangible thing for consumers uh, and users of the space to grab onto. Yeah. Well, uh, some of the big points that that convinced this one uh, building owner or, or business owner to, to go down the well route their key statistics, this is Arup, I think is how you pronounce the business name. Their three key notes that, that convinced them to go down the road, route is 90% of operating expenses go to staff salaries and benefits. 
in America, 90% of our time is spent indoors. 90% of people say the work environment adversely affects their attitude towards their company. So those three points are huge markers to convince someone to go down the well route without even going specifically into the details of the metrics of the exact um, data. And once you start to get into that data, you can study one space and get some, you know, some easy numbers to, to start to, to convince. And I, I assume they'll have some huge report because we're only uh, four years out. I imagine at the five and 10 year mark, they'll have a, a, a pretty detailed response of how exactly these buildings are um, starting to switch, uh, improve people's lives and occupancy. Yeah. yeah. And we've, we've all been in, you know, quote unquote, green buildings or the lead certified buildings. And those buildings without question are inspiring, right? You're, you're in that space and it, you feel the light is better. The air it seems to flow better. Um, you have typically greenery. Uh, and so, yeah, those spaces are more inspiring, but, but numbers wise, um, you know, is there an added benefit for, or I guess, does the benefit outweigh the cost and the time uh, for going down that rate to get that, that certification? Yeah. I think so. I don't think we really can afford to to not um, invest in in both of these programs because we do know that that our current standards and processes are not really cutting it, and in some cases adversely affecting us. And ultimately, Lead and Well are still in their infancy, so we need to continue to get educated and, and promote them to to the general public and as we move forward hopefully industry professionals government officials and uh, especially the the general public will continue to have these conversations and ask questions about these standards and promote leading well uh, i think they're great tools and, and a foundation for us to have efficient and human-centric design that we desperately need to implement globally. So we'll wrap up this discussion. I wanted to end off with a game. These are lead and well uh, test questions. All right, question one. When applying for innovation credits, a project team A cannot submit any previously awarded innovation credit, B may receive credit for performance that doubles a credit requirement threshold, C, may submit a product or strategy that is being used in an existing lead credit, D, may receive a credit for each lead AP that is on the project team. D? You pick D, Jason? Michelle. A? This is a wild guess. <laughs> yeah, super wild guess. That's funny. <laughs> uh, the answer is B, may receive credit for performance that doubles a credit requirement threshold. <laughs> All right. Uh, you might have a chance on this one. Two, a developer wants to make a profit by building a new office that maximizes daylighting and views. What action might the developer take to fulfill all parts of the triple bottom line? <laughs> 
A, restore habit, habitat on site. B, purchase ergonomic furniture. C, pursue local grants and incentives. Or D, provide lighting controllability for occupants. D. Jason. Yeah, I was going to go with D as well. Nice. You both got that one. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> All right. These are well-specific questions. Three, according to a study completed by the World Green Building Council, it shows staff costs such as salaries and benefits account for blank percent of most business operational expenses. A, 75%. B, 90%. C, 50%. Or D, 95%. Wait, didn't we talk about this in the podcast? Yeah. Shoot. What are my options again? <laughs> A, 75%. B, 90%. C, 50%. Or D, 95%. Oh, man. So like it's 75 said, or 50. No, I think we said 90%. I'll go 75. Michelle is correct. 90%. 90? Yeah. Yeah, which is. I guess it depends on the industry. A, There's no way. <laughs> I mean, there in and of itself lies a problem, right? Yeah. Number four, which of the following body systems primary function is to supply nutrients and remove waste from the body tissues? A, endocrine system. B, integumentary system. C, cardiovascular system. Or D, urinary system? I want to say it was A. A. Yeah. You both say A? Yeah. Wrong. C cardiovascular system which is surprising really yeah uh supplies nutrients and removes waste from the body tissues so this is the last one number five what air volume is required for air flush out before occupancy a 3500 cubic feet per square foot b 7000 cubic feet per square foot C, 14,000 cubic feet per square foot, or D, 28,000 cubic feet per square foot? I couldn't hear B, so I'm going with C. <laughs> okay. It's a wild guess, so I like the letter A to this morning. <laughs> Jason, you got that one. C. Yeah, buddy. Just <laughs> like in school, process of elimination. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so it looks like you guys tied. So we'll do one last one to break the tie. A project is located within half a mile to a data gathering station that monitor outdoor levels of ozone, uh, particulate matter 10. It's a specific material. Temperature and humidity. Which of the following well features may this affect? A. Air infiltration management. B, operable windows, C, air quality monitoring and feedback, or D, humidity control? Oh, I would yeah. say air infiltration. I think that was A. I am too. I <laughs> truly feel like that's the right answer, not because Jason chose it. <laughs> you were both wrong. It's operable windows. Really? Yeah. So you'd have to keep them shut in order to keep the indoor air quality better then? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, 
so you end in a tie today because I don't have any more questions prepared. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll say I tied a USC grad. I'm good to go. <laughs> okay, so you guys both end in a tie. Um, but we'll we'll move on to listener mail. We received an email from Amir, uh, who is in D.C. right now. So thank you for sending this email, Amir. I'm catching up on some of your older episodes, and I'm enjoying it, though I sometimes find myself cringing when you make me feel old. In, in the episode on millennials, I found a lot of moments where I agree with Jason's point of view. Oh, that's a tiebreaker. I win. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Says, I think I'm closest to him in age, but one of you said, <laughs> uh, but one of you said something which made me think of a really great book I recently read. So it's a, a book uh, recommendation. It's called uh, Homo Deus, I think is how you pronounce it, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Uh, the author is Yuval Noah Harari. Um, sounds like it's about how society's views and desires are changing. Um, so book recommendation for, for the, for the audience. I haven't read it myself yet. Um, but, but I'm definitely going to reach out or try and grab this one, uh, and read this. That'll be on my list. So cool. from Amir, cool. Amir agrees with you, Jason. You're the man, Amir. <laughs> but other than that, we will wrap up for today. Thank you again for joining us. Um, Thank you for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and like it. Forward the link to a friend. Your support is the only way that this show grows. And if you just stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Also, check out spacespodcast.com under the listen tab for photos and notes on things we discussed today. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. This is Sam. It's a robot put together with off-the-shelf parts by a company called Construction Robotics. It looks more like a chest freezer than C-3PO, but it can lay more than 3,000 bricks a day once it gets going. The best human masons can do about 1,000. And Sam never makes mistakes or gets tired. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next, or if you're listening as we put these out, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. 
that was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.